Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Family is God's idea. He thought it up. And everything that God thinks up, you know, is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It was in the Almighty's mind, and without any external counsel at all, he enacted family. And that's why it exists today. You and I are used to the idea of family. We're used to a husband, a wife, children, and then extended family. But it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be this way. When Adam was in that garden of paradise, he stood there all by himself. And in that very good garden, that was the only not good thing. It is not good, God said, that the man should be alone. And the solution to man being alone was family. Beginning with marriage, God made Eve the first woman out of Adam's rib, and he brought her to him. He brought her to him. Therefore, Genesis 2.24 famously says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That was God's idea. And Adam and Eve's marriage was also the blueprint for all marriages and the basis for all families that would ever occur afterward. This is the basic building block of family is marriage. It starts with marriage and then, Lord willing, children. Because the two becoming one flesh, in most cases, though not all in our fallen world, results in then the next part of family, which is children. So you have father and mother, the basic building blocks, children are added, and this is family, and this was God's idea, and this is a good thing and not a bad thing, and every single one of you has experienced family. You might think, oh no, a sermon on family, and you're single, and you don't want to be single, or you want to be single, and you think, not another message on family. You're part of family. Every single person here is born from Man and woman coming together, and we are born. There's a sense of family. You have a father. You have a mother. They may pass away, but you had a father. You had a mother. Our lives are intertwined with family of various kinds. There's no way for a person to simply appear in the world without some connection to family somehow. Even those who afterward lose family. The reason we do see in this world, not always father, mother, children in perfect harmony the way that God had designed, is because Genesis 3 took place after Genesis 2. And in Genesis 3, the fall of mankind into sin, we see forces that have influenced but not destroyed God's original great idea for family. Because of Genesis 3, there is now death. That might be why you don't have father or mother Wife or husband, children may have died. Divorce, because of the hardness of our hearts, takes place in this world. And there are other deviations from God's design, whether that be an affair outside the sacred bond of marriage or LGBTQI+, or any other deviation away from God's original design. Those things, because of Genesis 3, take place. But the important thing to remember is they've not wiped out God's design for family. 
It wasn't your idea. And it's not a mere social contract. It has always been, and it is, God's idea that this world would be made up of families. Foundational family units to every community, to every nation. No matter how we try to alter it, that's the basics. And God thought it up. And since God thought it up, it is good and it is not bad. And God's intention, the ideal that he had, is that families would in harmony and with one voice worship and serve the Lord together. You know that we don't live up to that ideal in a Genesis 3 affected world. But don't forget that is still the ideal. And it was still God's idea. The point that we have, what matters to us now, those who live in a fallen world where we will experience family, but not in every possible way, for us what matters most is that we glorify God in our family roles, whatever they might be, including singleness. Paul's point in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to us was this. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. He's talking about family. And to which God has called him. You are called to glorify God. And you live in a world of family. So you are called to glorify God in your family. And to help us to do this, we have the scriptures. It's not just guesses as to how to do that. In every role in family you may find yourself, we have the scriptures. And we have this passage that's been given to us today. This passage which finds a father and a mother and a child all serving the Lord together. This is not a passage that was mainly designed by God to show you how to live out family life well. That's not the main point of the passage, but it does that. And so that is how we're going to look at it today. So look with me as we continue the story of Samuel, born of Hannah, who is now in Shiloh. She's devoted him to serve the Lord there. Let's look as we continue this story, 1 Samuel 2, beginning verse 18. Samuel, that's the son, was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe. And take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah, that's the husband and father, and his wife, Hannah, and say, May the Lord give you, husband, father, children by this woman, wife, mother, for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel, the son, grew in the presence of the Lord. I don't want us to forget the big picture of what's taking place in this passage and in this part of 1 Samuel. You know that 1 Samuel is mainly about King David. Samuel is important because he will grow up and anoint King David. Keep that in mind. 
That's part of why this passage is here. It's preparing us for David. And of course, David would be the forefather of Jesus the Christ come in the flesh. So David matters a whole lot to us. He will prefigure. He will be a type, a picture of Christ, the son of David. So that is Samuel's importance in the whole scheme of salvation history. So don't forget that as we focus in on this passage. Nor should you forget that theologically an important point in this passage is that God visited Hannah. He who closed her womb visits her. He's opened her womb. He's given her a family. God is our deliverer. He's the one who visits us. These are very important themes and they're central to what's being said in this text. But these are themes that we see week after week and shall continue to see week after week in 1 Samuel. What's unique to these few verses here, though, and is not shared with all the other passages, is that here we do see a family in unison, living at a distance, true, but together in our text, worshiping the Lord. And so we have a kind of model, a kind of ideal of God's original intention for family. And since... We won't see this again. Elkanah disappears from the picture entirely after this passage. I thought we would take this time to focus on what we learn about a God-honoring, worshiping family in these verses. And so we're going to look at this passage under three headings. They're the ones you've already seen. Father, first. A mother, second. And a child, third. The building blocks of a family. And we will see how they worship the Lord So that we can worship the Lord as families too. So let's begin by looking at this father serving the Lord. Look at Elkanah in verses 19 and 20 again. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, and say, may the Lord give you, that's the husband, the father, Elkanah, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So so then they, Elkanah and Hannah, and the rest of the family would return to their home. Elkanah is not the focus of this passage. He's kind of in the background here. Elkanah actually has not been the focus of this entire story. He's been there. We're getting used to seeing Elkanah. But he's not been the focus. He's just been present. This book began with Elkanah. If you remember, 1 Samuel begins, there was a certain man. So we're going to see the story of Hannah and then of Samuel. They're the focus. And then David, he's the focus. Even Saul's a focus. Elkanah's not a focus, but notice... The whole book started with Elkanah. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. A few verses later in chapter 1, it continued, Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. When Hannah fulfills her vow and brings Samuel to Shiloh to give Samuel to the Lord at Shiloh, Again, it starts with Elkanah. The man, Elkanah, and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. And then chapter 2 begins with Hannah's beautiful prayer to the Lord, but it ends this way. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah. 
So even though Elkanah has not been the main focus of this story, and he disappears after this passage today, there's a sense in which he's been the backbone of the whole story. Every time a new scene, a new episode appears in our story, Elkanah begins it. It starts with him, and then he usually disappears. He's always the one initiating going up to Shiloh, going back down home to Ramah. And in our present passage, he's functioning very much the same way. Hannah's the focus as she is going to Shiloh. But notice in verse 19, she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Elkanah is always leading his family. That's why he's everywhere as the backbone. Because if they're going up to worship at Shiloh, he's leading them to go there. The story's about Hannah, the story's about Samuel, but it doesn't happen without Elkanah. Because he's fulfilling this role of leadership in the worship of his family. And then verse 20 is interesting because Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say to him, May the Lord give you, Elkanah, children by this woman... For the petition she asked of the Really what we find in Elkanah here are two fatherly virtues. If you're a father, you can aspire to these same by the grace of God. Look at these two. Because we're not, like I said, we're not going to see Elkanah again. He only appears in 1 Chronicles 6 in a genealogy. That's it. Apart from that, he's gone. So what can we learn from Elkanah? First, like I've said, it is clear that Elkanah leads his family. That's obvious here. When the time comes for their yearly worship at Shiloh, they have to travel from Ramah to Shiloh. Elkanah is initiating that. And he's leading his family, his large family, to go there. He's the one making the sacrifice. He's the one dividing the portions. He's the one fulfilling or agreeing to Hannah's vow. Hannah is not like, sadly, many poor wives who are basically leading the worship of their family. And you know that this is commonplace and often happens. The wife is the spiritual head, in a sense, of the family. The father is not thought of as spiritual. He just puts the roof over the head. And it's the mother who's the spiritual one. Certainly God uses that. Even in Timothy's life, it was that way. Is, that is not God's design for the family. If you are a father, God's intention is that you lead in the worship of your family, just like Elkanah did. It is not given over to a pastor. It is not given over to your wife, certainly. You are to be the most spiritually minded member of your family. And you, more than anyone else in your family, are called by God to initiate worship. You are the one who makes sure that Sunday mornings are a time of worship for your family. As hard as that is getting the kids ready, that's on you. You are the one who either in family worship, devotions, or in conversation about God with your children, you're leading that. That is God's design for a family. You see that in Elkanah, he's leading in the worship. You may know that in the New Testament, the primary command to a wife is that she would submit to her husband. So Ephesians 5 says, for example, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. 
But you know, every time that Scripture commands a wife to submit to her husband, that implies that the husband is to lead the wife. If God says to the wife, you go where he leads you, then you better be out there leading if you're a husband. If you're the father of the family, you better be out in the front leading somewhere. How is she going to submit to you? How is she going to follow you? You're called to lead. That's what Elkanah is doing here, of course. You're called to lead in every area of life in your family. But the most important area of life is relationship with God. It's worship. And that is where God calls fathers and husbands to lead more than anywhere else. Yes, to provide. Yes, you're to lead in other ways and manage your household. But more than anything else, you are called to lead your family in how it relates to its creator, God himself. In matters of worship, and Elkanah really is a good example of that because that's basically all we've seen him do. I mean, that's kind of his role in the whole story is leading them up to Shiloh to worship. The command in Deuteronomy to parents, although unstated, is really a command to fathers. You shall teach your children, teach these words rather, diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. No husband or father can say, that's what my wife does. I hope she does. But this is a command for you. This is a command for us as husbands, as fathers. We're the ones who are to be talking about God. That should be normal in your house. And if it's not normal in your house to talk about God, you bear the responsibility of that. Then you need to make it normal. As awkward as that might be at first, you got to make it normal. Pray for the Lord's help. You are called, you're commanded. You have to be the one leading the worship of your family, conversations about God throughout the day. Lead your families in worship if you're a husband or father. Be out front. Do not be following your wife. You be leading your wife. Do not be the least spiritual person in your family. You're called to be the most spiritual person in your family. Yes, put a roof over their heads. That's a good place to begin. You are called, even more than that, you are called to provide spiritually for your family. And we do see that in Elkanah. But we see a second virtue in Elkanah. It's not just that he's leading in worship. That's very significant. But there's a second virtue I think we can see with him. It's that although he is clearly the leader of his family, it doesn't go to his head. (laughs) That's important to point out. This story, as I said, is not about Elkanah. And I think he's just fine with that. He's not the main focus of it. There's conversation happening between Hannah and Eli. She makes a vow about giving up their son. It's their son. And he is there supporting what's happening in Hannah's life. He's even earlier supporting poorly, perhaps, and saying, am I not better to you than 10 children? But he's there always supporting his wife. There's no sense of domineering that we see in Elkanah. He's a supportive husband. He's fulfilling what would come up later in Ephesians 5. Wives submit, so we have to lead husbands. But then when it comes to husbands, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. And so Elkanah loved Hannah. Elkanah gave Hannah the double portion. 
Elkanah tried to encourage her with his words, although poorly, and he didn't give up after that, which is important. Elkanah supported the vow that Hannah made to the Lord about their son. Elkanah supported the decision that Hannah had made about waiting until the child was weaned to bring him to Shiloh. Now, this is hard if you're a husband or a father, really if you're a human, but this is hard especially as a husband and father. You know that God has called you to lead your family. Sometimes we assume that means that we are therefore the main character in our family, <laughs> and we have a supporting cast, wife, children, but they're all there to highlight your great qualities and to support your life and your decisions and the things you're trying to do. <laughs> That's not true. That is not biblical leadership. Elkanah is happy, although he is very clearly the leader of his family. He understands that is his role, and that is your role. You are the leader of your family, 100%. Not your wife, it is you. Not a child, it is you. But a leader is the one who happily puts himself beneath everybody else to lift them up. Not the one standing over top saying, children, do this, quiet down, wife, do this for me. This biblical leadership means that husbands, you do have the call to lead, to make those final decisions. You have the veto so that you can sacrifice more than anybody else in your family. So that you can be like Alkanah, coming alongside to support Hannah, his wife. Not requiring her to stop all her relationship with the Lord to just focus upon him. He's supportive of her. Just like husbands are called, like Christ, to lay down their lives for their wives. That's leadership. You lay down your wife. You make the sacrifices to sanctify her. Elkanah is happy to support his wife. He is carrying the heaviest burden, I would assume here. And that is what a husband's called to do. You lead by carrying the heaviest burden, not by requiring others to carry heavier burdens than you. Leading your wife is not about getting her to support you so you can shine. Leading your wife is about putting your wife in a place where she can shine. Putting your children in a position where they can thrive. And that will cost you a lot, and that's why many husbands and fathers don't do it. But you are a Christian, and this is what you are called to do as a husband and a father. To lead by supporting your family. This is, I think, why Peter gives his excellent counsel in 1 Peter chapter 3 when he says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, not a domineering way, but you understand your wife showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, you're not the main character. <laughs> Elkanah is not the main character in this passage, and that's just fine. Maybe if your life was written out, you wouldn't be the main character in the story. It'd be how you supported your wife, how you loved your children, and hopefully they went and did way more than you ever did for Christ. You have to lead like Elkanah, but you should be glad if the story is not about you. We have a supporting role. Our wife is our helper. Again, that's the role, our helper. She is helping us as we lead in a way that supports the whole family, not just ourselves. So that is what a godly father does. And you can see that in Elkanah. But now we have to turn from Elkanah. He's the father. Of course, another basic building block, if you're going to have a family, is you need a mother. 
So we move from the father here to the mother. So we move from Elkanah to someone who is more in the center of the stage, and that is Hannah. See verses 19 to 21 now, looking at Hannah. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. That might better be translated for the child she lent to the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. It's clear that Hannah is fulfilling her call to submit to her husband. We don't see anything contrary to that, at least in her behavior. But I'm not going to focus upon that because our text doesn't focus upon that. That's clearly a virtue of a wife. But we see actually two other wifely virtues presented in Hannah. And we're not going to be seeing Hannah after this point. So it's fitting that we stop here and consider these virtues in her in this passage and in 1 Samuel. The first virtue you find in Hannah, and maybe the clearest of them all, especially in our passage, is that Hannah works hard. Verse 18 says that Samuel was clothed with a linen ephod. That was the garment that priests wore was a linen ephod. Don't ask me what an ephod is. I don't know, and the commentators don't either. Some kind of garment that the priests wore. But an ephod, whatever it was, was too small to keep you warm from the elements. And so you also needed an outer coat called a robe in our text. You needed a robe that would keep you warm. The ephod is probably supplied to Samuel by the priests there in Shiloh, because that's their business, they're priests. But who is going to provide a coat for this child? And if you're a parent, you know the child will outgrow the coat as fast as you buy the coat. So someone needs to provide a coat regularly in bigger sizes, 45T, for this child as Samuel is growing. Who is going to do that? Hannah used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year. Hannah didn't have to do that. As we see later in our text, at some point, Hannah had five other children. <laughs> and I will just say from experience, she was busy. She had a lot going on in her life. And so it would have been easy for her to forget Samuel. Samuel is far away. He is in Shiloh. She has enough plates that are spinning. She doesn't have to spin this plate. She says, oh, this is, this is Eli's responsibility. He can take care of the child. But what you see in Hannah is that she is a hard worker for all of her children. It's not a matter of personal convenience for her. This is her son Samuel, even though she's dedicated him to the Lord, and she takes the responsibility. She will provide for him a coat. I don't know all that that entailed. Some of you have tried knitting or cross-stitching or whatever all these things are called. It takes a long time. It takes a long time. And she's making an entire garment in larger sizes every year. And she probably doesn't just have a ton of free time to be doing this. But she is a hard worker, obviously and clearly. 
Now, this is something, if you've ever done a study on a godly wife and mother in the Bible, this is one of those things that's maybe surprising at first, because you might think what's most virtuous in a wife and a mother is this person who's very timid and quiet, kind of a trophy wife who just doesn't speak up. However, while certainly a quiet, gentle spirit is pleasing in God's sight, what we find when we come, for example, to Proverbs 31, a chapter, half of it devoted to a godly wife and mother, is that the main theme of what a godly wife and mother is in Proverbs 31 is that she works hard. That's what it is. I won't read all of it, but especially these verses here. She puts her hand to the distaff and her hand to the spindle. She's making clothes. That's what's happening, just like Hannah. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy, maybe making them clothes as well. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. Part of that is because you read Proverbs 31, she's got a side hustle. She has a business. She's selling things to supply clothes and making clothes for her family. She's working so hard. It says she gets up early. She goes to bed late, hopefully on different days. But she's working very diligently to support her family. That is part of a virtue in a wife and in a mother. If you are a wife or a mother, (laughs) you know it's hard to be a wife or a mother. I mean, it's more hard than anyone could have prepared you for to have these little children everywhere who are always demanding so much of you. Sometimes it's just surprising when you first become a parent, especially for a mom. Did you know that this much would be required of you? Did you have any idea that it would be this much? It is a lot. The sheer quantity of work that a mother does is basically impossible, to be honest. It's basically impossible, just the amount of work. And of course, there's no PTO, and it just goes on and on and on every day. There's not really weekends. A vacation with family is just different than a vacation before you had children. Yeah, it's different. So especially for a mother, there is so much work. It's part of the reason that even culturally, birth rate is declining very sharp. There's other reasons too, but a part of that is because it's just so hard. I have one kid and go, that's hard enough. (laughs) It is, it is. The amount of work a mother has to put into this. But thinking biblically, we understand that that is part of the virtue of a mother. There is no easy way for a mother to parent well. There are ways for a mother to parent easily, but it's not well. (laughs) If you want to be a mother and do well and please the Lord, it will be hard. Maybe that is included in Genesis with the curse of the itzavon, the pain that will now be in childbearing, certainly in bearing the child at first, very painful, but you can almost connect that to raising the child as well. I think maybe the ladies' study, they had talked about that. It's ongoingly, that's hard to raise children as a mother. You think, well, once the children get older, it won't be so hard. They can dress themselves. <laughs> but then you're like locked in this unending chess game of complexity. So it's not like it gets easier per se. It just changes. It's not so physical and now it's mental. So it is hard to be a mother. That's the point. Mothers, godly mothers, they work hard. They embrace and they accept Maybe better on some days than others, but they accept the role that God has given them. They don't think, why is this so hard? They go, this is what I signed up for. This is what it means to be a godly mom. Is this going to be a hard thing? And you can see that in Hannah. She accepts her role. She's willing to put aside time with five other children 
to put aside time to make a little robe for Samuel to take care of him. A second virtue is related to the first one in Hannah. Not only is she working hard for her family, but she clearly values her children. And I think in previous generations and maybe more traditional cultures, this is a point you wouldn't even have to point out. I think everyone would agree, yes, we value children. However, we need to say it today. Look at Eli's blessing in verse 20. May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord or in place of the one she lent to the Lord. Just bear in mind, that was a blessing. That was not a curse. (laughs) That was not a curse. May you have more children. That was not a curse. That was a blessing. And all of the original hearers of the story way back in the day would have heard and understood that is a blessing, not a curse to have children. What happens in verse 21 reinforces this. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah. And when Scripture says the Lord visited or remembers someone, means he's giving attention because he's about to do something for their deliverance or for their good. So when God visits Hannah, it's to bless her. And what is the blessing? Three sons and two daughters. An excellent number of children, if I might say so myself. But three sons and two daughters. And that is a blessing. And that is not a curse. Not every person will have children. Some of you will never have children. Paul actually says that he would rather all Christians be single because you can devote yourself more to the Lord. You're not distracted. You're focused on the Lord. But everyone is called to different things. Some of you will not be called to have children. Some of you, like when we spoke of Hannah's barrenness, you will not be able to have children. And that's okay. In the life to come, there will not be marriage. There will not be family in the same way there is now. It will be better. It will be better. But it won't be like it is now. It's a temporary thing. That being said, if you are a mother who has been given children, that is your calling. They are not an inconvenience or an interruption to all of the other things you had wanted to do with your life. And they are not now just an interruption to the many things you want to get done. They can certainly feel that way. No, no, no. They are the things you have to get done. They're not in the way. They are the way. God has given you this as a blessing. That's certainly how Hannah thought of it. She was blessed by being given children. And then she devoted herself to serving her children. Hannah valued children. The Bible values children. The Bible does not value children as the most important thing. Because it is not the most important thing. But neither does it degrade having children as a mere inconvenience, which is more the temptation in our day to see children as an inconvenience. No, no, no. If anyone is tempted to see children, even your own children, as an interruption, an inconvenience, getting in the way of getting the real work of life done, then you can just go back to Jesus. Because his disciples thought the same thing. When the parents brought their little children to busy, busy Jesus, who literally was establishing God's kingdom, very important, more important than what you're doing. And when the disciples said, Jesus doesn't have time for little children, Jesus said, no, 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 you let those little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. If you're a mother of children, that is your calling. That's what God specifically called you to. It is a good thing. It is a blessing. And it is hard. It is incredibly hard. But it is still a good thing. 1 Timothy 2.15. 
is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible and one of the more shocking ones. But we will not exclude it from our Bibles. If you've ever encountered this verse, when it's speaking of women and it says, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. We're not studying that text right now. Many have said that means that women, as a part of mankind, will be saved because a woman, Mary, gives birth to Jesus and we're saved through Jesus being born and living and dying. And maybe that is what that means. But at the very least, what we can say about this shocking verse, 1 Timothy 2.15, is it puts for women especially, who are called to it, a very high value on childbearing and on the raising of children. Just be careful on social media because I know uh, it's common on social media to make a lot of jokes about how hard it is to have kids. And I get it. It's hard. But that can influence you. Do not think of your kids as an inconvenience. God has given them to you and you to them. And Scripture puts such a high value on mothers raising their children well. So we've seen father, we've seen mother, and lastly, this leads us to the child. This is Samuel. He's going to be the focus from here on out till we get to Saul and then David. But right now he's just a child. You can see that if you look in verse 18. He's the bookends in 18 and 21. In 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. In verse 21, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Part of the reason we need to see Samuel growing three times in chapters 2 and 3, we read of Samuel growing. We could say, well, of course we know he's growing. Three times we also hear of him ministering or serving the Lord, and we know he's doing that. But he's being set before us as a contrast to Eli's house, Eli the priest and his sons who are evil priests. The idea here is that Samuel is growing and ministering before the Lord because as he grows, the time for Eli's house grows shorter and shorter. Judgment is coming. We'll see this next week. Judgment is coming for Eli's house. So God is raising up someone else and later will raise up Abiathar, even another priest to take the place. But that's why we see him growing here. He ministered he grew. Now, it's clear that we're talking about a very young Samuel. We don't know how young, but very young, because he's called the boy at the beginning and end of our passage, and that word literally means a young person. And also, in verse 19, when his mom brings his robe, it is a little robe, because he is a little man. Notice, though, even while he is little, he is still little. He's little. He's not big, he's little. And while he is little, what is he doing? He is ministering before the Lord. And even as he's becoming less little, he is growing in the presence of the Lord. Samuel is a young man who does not wait until he is older to serve the Lord. Now, I understand that his ministering is different than how any children or young people here would minister. He is in a tabernacle. He is opening the doors in the morning. He's doing Eli's bidding. He's helping with sacrifices or what have you. So, yes, that's different. We're not going to do that. Your children aren't going to do that. You who are younger are not going to do that. But there's no lack of need for those to minister to God's people today, even if in a different way. 
And children can be a part of that. And I think children should be a part of that. The temptation is for us to think, well, wait till you're big. But Samuel didn't wait till he was big. His parents didn't wait till he was big. It was while he was little. You might be tempted to think, well, I don't know if my children even know the Lord yet. So I'm not going to drag them to church stuff. I'm not going to get them involved in serving. They can't spiritually appreciate that. Drag them to church stuff. Still do it. At the very least, what you're doing is you are training them in the motion of service so that when they come to Christ, it's not an uncomfortable, unfamiliar motion to serve. They just keep doing what they've been doing and they keep serving. That's certainly Samuel. He doesn't know the Lord yet. We'll see that later. He doesn't know the Lord yet, but he is ministering before the Lord, living in the presence of the Lord. And that is my here final appeal as we talk of children, just looking at Samuel. When Paul in the New Testament speaks to husbands and wives and gives commands in Ephesians 5, he then turns in Ephesians 6 to children. That is the basis of my appeal here, is that Scripture doesn't put children off to the side and say, I have nothing to say to you till you get bigger. Paul, Scripture, through Paul, speaks to children and says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why? Why? For this is right. It is right for children to obey their parents, and it is right for children to serve in any way that they can serve. You who are parents, to encourage that in your children to be serving, and you who are younger, this could be up through high school, do you want to look back on your youngest years when you had the most strength and energy and think, I'm so glad that I gave the prime of my vigor and my energy and my attention in my most formative years to Minecraft? I'm so glad that I did that. I have no regrets about that. <laughs> You'll regret that. You will regret that. But you know what you will not regret? You will not regret any way you have served others putting stickers on food for the gobbler gathering. This should be something we expect of children. And you who are younger, look, society doesn't put any expectations on you except Minecraft. That's about all they expect of you. But Scripture expects a lot more. Scripture expects service because it's the right thing to do. Serving siblings in the home, loving brothers and sisters in the home, helping with chores, helping parents using one's allowance to buy something for someone, getting involved in Epic or YDM in order to serve rather than be served, praying for missionaries in the church. There's no need to wait until you're bigger. Samuel didn't wait till he was bigger. He was still small and he was serving the Lord because that was right for him to do. So father, mother, child, this is God's idea of family. And although we won't reach up to God's ideal in this lifetime, it's exactly where we're aiming. We are aiming for families like this. All of us together fulfilling our roles and serving the Lord together. And what we need to do it, because it is an impossible task, is what God did with Hannah. He visited her. And our prayer as a local body, and your prayer ought to be too for your family, that the Lord would visit your family, that He would give attention to your family. If you're going through incredibly painful, hard things in your family right now, and you are at a loss, welcome to parenting. <laughs> That's just life or marriage. Now we cry out to the Lord, and I would give you this blessing as you appeal to the Lord to help you in your marriage and your family. May the Lord grant the request that you have asked of Him. <laughs>